Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies, who did the heavy lifting on editing this episode. You can learn more about his work at IdealVideoStrategies.com. If you haven't joined the ADHD Essentials Facebook community yet, we'd love to have you. It's a group where you'll find support for parenting your child with ADHD or managing your own challenges. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash ADHD Essentials community to sign up. Or just find the link in the show notes. And don't forget about that five-star rating and review you've been meaning to share on iTunes. Now's a great time to close that loop. Besides five-star rating and reviews, the best way to support this show is by sharing it with others either online or in person. So let folks in your Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram feeds know that we exist, or just go wander the streets and randomly tell people about us. Whatever strikes your fancy. This is episode 64. Today, we're talking to Dawn Marie about emotional intelligence. Dawn Marie helps people learn to recognize their reactions to people and situations and teaches them how to respond to those same people and situations with more productive thoughts, feelings, and actions. In today's episode, we talk about balancing societal expectations against the needs of ourselves and our kids, experiencing a terrible moment without becoming that terrible moment, losing parents as an adult, and how adjectives are like stones in a basket. All right, let's get rolling. I'm an expert in emotional intelligence. I've been doing this for about 24 years. I didn't start out knowing that that's what I was doing. I started out working with uh, people that primarily came from my church, actually. They were looking for a spiritual way to approach their lives that would give them a better understanding of how to be uh, emotionally and physically well. And I seemed to be really good at that stuff. And I began to realize the kinds of issues that were coming my way, the types of things people were looking for. I began doing my own research, wanting to educate myself more, wanting to be more professional. And I came across this idea of emotional intelligence. I didn't know that was a thing. I'd heard of having a, a high or low IQ but I'd never heard of having an EQ, an emotional quotient. Mm -hmm. And so the more research I did, it led me on a path that landed in positive psychology, which is a branch of psychology that started at the University of Pennsylvania. It's led by a brilliant team of people who've done a crazy amount of research. And so the two kind of work side by side in my practice as I coach people Basically, emotional intelligence is the thing that we all have that tells us how to relate. Whether we are relating to the thoughts in our own head, we're relating to other people, we're relating to the activities in our lives, the things that happen to us or because of us, how we relate has to do with 
how well we understand relationships. And emotional intelligence is something that most of us have, at least in part, but it's something that also most of us need some skills in. If you've ever had a conversation where you know what you meant, but the other person did not, <laughs> you probably need a little help with emotional intelligence. There was something they were giving you in terms of cues in their conversation, in their body language, uh, even in their pauses that maybe you didn't pick up on and you didn't realize they weren't understanding you. They weren't taking you the way you wanted them to take you. And so these are, these are the kinds of skills that I can help people with and they run a really huge gamut. They can be um, help in giving and receiving feedback. Some of us feel very free to give feedback and don't take it very well. That's an emotional intelligence skill. <laughs> um, it can even be something like meeting deadlines, keeping your anxiety in check, focus, dealing with change, working with setbacks or failures, really just about anything you could participate in or be part of has an emotional intelligence piece. Mm -hmm. And the better your skills are at understanding that, the more successful you are in everything that you do. I really like the idea of emotional intelligence as relating. And specifically those three categories that you provided where it's relating to others, relating to ourselves, and then relating to the task at hand, I guess, the thing you need to do. I know for myself, I started good at relating to others. I always had that sort of empathy thing going, right? And when I met my wife, I was blown away by how much she understood about herself. She would say like, I'm getting sick. And I remember that was weird to me. I was like, what do you mean you're getting sick? Yeah. Well, yeah, tomorrow I'm probably going to come down with something and I just feel like a little off. I remember just, I was like, really? Like, I just am suddenly sick. Like, I didn't know getting sick was a thing. Like, I just, sure. all of a sudden I throw up or I have a stuffy nose or whatever. I, there, I had no frame of reference for being aware that that was coming. And so I've spent a lot of time, one, she opened my eyes to the fact that that could happen. And so then I started working on learning about me and, and, and those kinds of things. And now I'm sort of the, I sort of have that, the perpetual ADHD challenge of relating to the task, just a constant battle for me. I've gotten a lot better at it, but I'm still working on the motivation side of it. So I really like the idea of emotional intelligence being more than just people skills, but also a little bit of task skills in there as well. And I'd love to poke around in there, not exclusively, the people stuff matters too, but I like that. I like those three silos that you have. I, yeah, I would love to talk about that part because I think it would be the least obvious part. I tell somebody I'm an emotional intelligence coach. Matter of fact, I had ex an experience just a couple of days ago. I was sitting in a waiting room of the place that was changing the tires on my car. And the gentleman that was uh, stuck in there listening to the daytime television that neither one of us is used to. I didn't know you needed three judges to decide if somebody wrote a bad check or not but evidently you do. <laughs> so we started talking to each other to drown out that. And he asked me what I did and I'm an emotional intelligence coach. And he had a very similar reaction to many people that I say that to, which was a very confused face and a little bit of a body pullback, like, oh, emotions, those are scary and I don't like them. Mm. And people have sort of very immediate thoughts about what that might mean. And I usually get one of two responses. The most common is, oh yeah, I definitely need that. But of course they never ask me for help. 
And the other is, oh, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So dealing with emotions is something that I think culturally none of us are particularly used to. We have a lot of cultural baggage going along with what it means to even have an emotion. And that can be very gender specific. It can be age specific. There are a lot of negatives in our culture attached to that word emotion. The problem is we are emotional beings. Absolutely everything we think and do gives us a feeling. Yeah. Very few of us have nothing going on in that department. That's a whole other world of of psychology and psychiatry if if you're just not emotionally relating to to most things in your life. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to tasks, a lot of us feel like, well, no, I don't have an emotion about that. Well, it depends on how you define it. So for me, a teeny little bit about my background, I relate a lot to folks with ADHD. I've never been diagnosed with it, but the things I have been diagnosed with, anxiety, depression, and PTSD because of abusive relationships, I have some of the things that are similar. I can get entirely shut down by too many thoughts in my head. Mm-hmm. I can become overly focused on a thing because that's the, that's the thing keeping everything else quiet. I need that one thing at this moment so the other stuff ramming around in my head doesn't go berserk. And so there are certain things that make me feel like I have a bit of a relationship to folks that are, that are dealing with some of the struggles with, with ADD and ADHD because the same task can be sometimes very easy for me and sometimes very difficult because of the stuff that, that I need to work through on the daily. Right. I know what that's like. And so do my listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and so for myself personally, learning about this over the last two and a half decades has been literally, literally life-saving because it's given me the tools I need first to deal with the constant kind of misfiring of the circuits in my brain where I can come upon, you know, let's say a sink full of dirty dishes. And today I'm all about getting them done and I'm happy and I look out the window and tomorrow I will come upon that sink of dirty dishes and want to just go back to bed. Mm -hmm. So what I need are skills. If I need to just go back to bed, then I need something that can reinterpret what's going on with me. I need to understand what's going on and I need a way to have a different response. One of the things that I love about positive psychology and why it's such a big piece of how I help people is because one of its building blocks is the idea that we all have a way we respond to things, the way we explain events, thoughts, people, et cetera, to ourselves. It's our explanatory style. And so if I explain that pile of dishes as, oh my God, I just did them yesterday. What the, why are they there again? Then I'm taking the dishes personally. Right. Somehow those dishes have done something bad to me and I am mad about it. (laughs) And so I'm not going to want to deal with those dishes because they have made me mad or sad or whatever. If I can recognize, okay, nope, just dishes same kind of dishes I found yesterday and I was okay with. And I can say, I have choices. I'm not stuck. There's nothing and no one here telling me exactly what I have to do. I am not a slave to the dishes. I'm not a slave to the emotions I'm having. I have choices. What are my choices? 
my choices are, hmm, I'm going to walk away and I'm going to come back and try again a little later. I'm going to power through and I'm going to do the dishes, whatever. Whatever I think my choices are, one of the big skills is learning how to identify your choices. Somebody cuts me off in traffic. I have a lot of choices. <laughs> I can swear. I can honk my horn. I can get real close to their bumper for a really long time. I have a lot of choices. I can also breathe, decide they probably didn't do that on purpose, and just let it go. A lot of that's going to depend on how I explain the event to myself. Mm -hmm. And whether that explanation serves you or not. Exactly. Whether that story is useful for you. Exactly. And so emotional intelligence, along with a lot of other things, therapy, and, you know, there are a lot of things in life that can help you learn those lessons. Emotional intelligence just happens to be a place where those skills kind of congregate, where you can, you know, with somebody like me, a coach, or, you know, reading books, if you're really good at internalizing information like that. Forbes magazine has a ton of articles on the importance of emotional intelligence. You can Google emotional intelligence and ADHD and come up with a whole pile of things of, of you know, why we need these skills and how to gain them. And so yeah. there are a number of avenues to getting this information and to improving the way you process yourself, others, and the events in your life. And I would just highly encourage people to start that journey. Uh, it makes it makes just a giant difference. And odds are, if they're listening to this podcast, they're already on that journey. Exactly. Right? Like that's a major component of what we do with this podcast. My myself, my guests, my listeners. We talk about emotional intelligence all the time because it's such a major component of ADHD management for ourselves and for our kids. Understanding why our kids are emotionally making the decisions they're making, and also why we are making the decisions we're making, and how our emotions play a role in that. So that's why I wanted you on. Thank you. I appreciate that. One of the things I've really appreciated about what I'm able to do is watching people kind of find a new level of knowing themselves. Mm -hmm. From the time we're very small, we're taught how to be and we're told who to be. We're not generally helped to experience our own becoming. What does that mean exactly? When I was little... There were a lot of rules. Sit still. I was a girl, so keep your knees together. Um, there are a lot of rules to just sitting. Just sitting. <laughs> there were a lot of rules to standing. Stand up straight, shoulders back, you know. So many rules. We get taught a lot of rules. And, and so we get very occupied with how to navigate all the rules. Mm-hmm say I trip over something and I bump my knee and depending on who's in the room, I'm going to be given how to react. They're going to tell me as a child how to react. Don't cry. Stand up. Brush yourself off. Wipe your face. I'm going to get told everything to do about the fact that I skinned my knee. I'm not going to be asked how I feel. I'm not going to be encouraged to examine myself. I'm not going to be necessarily encouraged. Now, some people do do this. Some parents are wonderful and they have this skill where they know they should be engaging the child in their own becoming of themselves instead of just telling them who they are and telling them how to be. But a lot of us never had that. And so we unfortunately just repeat that. We tell children what colors match. We tell children you must wear matched socks. We tell children it's not a pretty picture if the entire thing is black. Uh -huh. But what if it is to them? Yeah, 
Yeah. And, and this is sort of, it's a little bit of a balancing act, right? Because on the one hand, we want to let our kids kind of figure out who they are and become, as you're saying. And on the other hand, society has certain expectations. And we want to make sure that our child is also able to exist within those expectations. And when we add ADHD to the mix, existing within those expectations are not always ADHD friendly. So it can be more challenging. It can be more difficult. But also, if you want to just have a black picture, have a black picture. Who cares? Like, that's fine. Do your right. thing. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. so some of this is kind of picking our battles, right? Like if the kid falls and scrapes their knee, one, yeah, we should probably validate the fact that that hurt. That looked painful. On the other hand, suck it up, buttercup. Like you don't get to just wallow in the pain. That's not a plan either. So we have to balance it, right? Like, oh, that looks like it really hurt. Like, you okay? And then you kind of watch, you know, and some kids are like, yeah, I'm okay. It's just, ow. And they're ready to limp or whatever. And other kids are like, ah, and they'll cry for a week if you let them. And you have to bring those kids over to the society expectations a little bit and be like, it wasn't that bad, dude. There aren't even any rocks in your knee. Like, <laughs> you're fine. I've had rocks in my knee and it's bad. You, that's not what's happening. You can still move. One of the ways that I would play with that, right? And I think this is coming from an emotional intelligence perspective. Once I explain it, it's going to sound terrible when I first describe <laughs> it. And then I'm going to have to walk you through it. But I was like, I was a camp counselor, right? So, oh, yeah. so I'm societal expectations is we don't have a lot of time. We have to move on, like whatever the injury is, right? Yep. Unless it's so bad that we have to go to the nurse, in which case we got to go to the nurse. But otherwise, it's like get back in the game. We're walking to someplace. We got to keep walking. I've got 10 other kids I'm also responsible for. There's, we need to keep moving. So one of the things I would do is when a kid hurt themselves, I'd, I would check on them. Hey, are you okay? And they're crying. If they're really intense and I'm like, this is not a big deal. Like, they're totally down with getting the stopping of the day and sort of people, people tuning into them. And I would say, okay. I'd sort of do like a body check. Mm -hmm. Like, how's your foot? How's your knee? It hurts a lot. Okay. All right. Well, I get it. The knee hurts a lot. And so now I'm reflective listening. I'm validating and all that stuff, but I'm going to move on because I want to distract them from the pain because we have to get to wherever we're going or something. How's your shoulder? It's okay. How's your finger? This one specifically. And I'd pick a finger, right? Usually it's the pointer finger. Um, it's okay. Good. Can you pick your nose? <laughs> and then now they're like, what? And they're totally thrown off and maybe they're laughing and they're looking at me like I'm crazy, but now the knee doesn't hurt, right? Because that's so out of the left field. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, should we keep going? <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, good. <laughs> What's really cool about what you did for them is that you didn't tell them how to think or feel. You gave them another thing to think and feel. And that can be a really awesome, you know, sometimes we just call that distraction, but that can be a really awesome tool to helping somebody learn through experience that I get to choose what I think about. And I'm, I guess I'm no longer going to choose to think about my knee. I'm going to choose to think about, you know, getting back into things. That skill is something we all need. We just haven't necessarily recognized that we've been learning it all along the way and that it's super useful to us. For example, somebody says something crappy to me at work and then I think about it all the rest of the day. I bring it home and I tell my spouse. And then 
I tell maybe the kids and then I t text it to somebody and tell them. And the next day in work, I'm still thinking about the crappy thing that person said. I've wasted an unfortunate amount of time with my spouse and my children. I've wasted my mental space and I've done nothing good for me or anyone else by staying in that space. And it may feel very justified. Maybe what happened was really bad and you might need to talk it through and that's fine. But where is the moment where we go, okay, it is now out and I'm going to think about my elbow and this specific finger and whether or not I can pick my nose, you know, <laughs> like when do I move on? When do I let it go? When is it appropriate to stop being justifiably upset? What amount of emotion is, is appropriate for a given situation? Take something drastic like somebody passing away. People have a lot of opinions about how long you should be sad or how sad you should act. And depending on who you're with, it could be totally opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, you could have some people that are like, suck it up, buttercup, life goes on. Yeah. And other people who are like, you know, it's only been two years. Why are you okay? I remember when my mom died and um, I eventually went to a mental health clinician and my logic was, I, I guess, a little maybe weird in hindsight. Like I knew I was depressed, but I also knew I was supposed to be depressed, you know, like mm -hmm. so sort of con contextually. I had my worst year ever in that, around that time. In one year, my career as a teacher ended. My mom got sick, my mom died, and then my car burned down on the side of the highway. So that's a lot for that's one That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And also other stuff <laughs> that it just, like I got a really bad case of poison ivy that seemed like a big deal at the time, but doesn't get included in the story anymore. <laughs> Cause it's just whatever. And like threes rule of threes. You're, you're like the, the exodus, all the plagues at once. <laughs> it's like... It was excessive. It was admittedly excessive, but I remember going to the, this mental health clinician and saying to them, and this is really my logic for going. I was like, like my mom has died and like, I don't know how to do that. And, and probably I knew more about how to do that than lots of other people. Cause I mean, I'm fairly emotionally intelligent and at the time I was in grad school for guidance counseling and I had already been a teacher and I was already doing some positive psychology stuff and some mental health work and ADHD coaching ish stuff that was starting kind of starting. And one of the things I ended up doing was, and it had nothing to do with the counselor was when my car burned down, I was standing on the side of the highway watching a literally a 50 foot pyre of flame come off the hood of my car Wow! and go in I don't know what to do with this. Like, I don't, I have no frame of reference for this. It really feels like the universe hates me right now, but I don't think that that's the case. I'm pretty sure I'm not hated by the universe. And so I was like, so what's my takeaway, right? And this is those, that choice point that you mentioned, right? Admittedly, this one's a little more epic than dishes. <laughs> but I sort of stood there and was like, like, what's my takeaway? And I decided that my takeaway was to stop looking at the awful and start looking at the awesome. And so literally every day on Facebook, I would post today's awesome and then write what it is. I still do it. I'm not as good at doing it every day anymore because I just don't always get to Facebook and that's just the nature of the beast. But I still do it regularly. And sometimes today's awesome is pancakes. 
and sometimes today's awesome is presenting at the international conference on ADHD. Like it's really all over the map with what the best thing of the day is. Yeah. But I had already started that practice when I was meeting with this mental health clinician. It's sort of a gratitude practice, positive mindset practice kind of thing that proved to be really valuable for me and probably kept me from, I probably kept me from suicidal ideation at the very least. And the other thing is contextually, I'm fairly confident that if I had gotten a car accident and that was what totaled my car, it would have ruined me. But there's something about a 50-foot pyre of flame coming off the front of your car when you're standing on the highway that is different. <laughs> like, it's just different. That epicness of it made it a little bit easier to contextualize. But even if I had been in a car accident, I would still have that choice point. I just might have made a different choice. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that set of experiences probably a lot of folks listening can relate to the universe just might hate me one more thing goes wrong and i'm done i i, I can't right similarly when my dad passed away um he was in a care facility and they called and said that he was probably going and um my mom and i were mm -hmm. Six and a half hours away, it was a very long drive, and we got there just as he was taking his last few breaths. And all of a sudden, I became um, the person who needed to call family and the person who needed to call the, the funeral home. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was all, all of a sudden tasked with all these things, and within a couple of days, I was, I was having to negotiate who would pay bills and who like all of these things. And I remember just sort of stopping. I was walking to do a thing and just stopping and going, I really just want to sit down right here and not move mm -hmm. forever. <laughs> just, I need everything that I'm supposed to be doing to stop. And I pulled hard on the things I had been learning this was more than 14 years ago. And so it was, you know, part of my earlier journey of, of really starting to understand what, you know, this thing that, that seemed to come naturally to me and how to do it well and how to base it on actual fact and legitimate practice. And, and I remember thinking, okay, I'm in a terrible moment. It's okay that I feel the terrible moment. What's not okay is if I become a terrible moment. If I let myself identify with it as though somehow it's part of who I am. And so I just started listening to myself, what I knew about myself. I knew that I was strong enough to get through this even if I, even if I didn't do it particularly well. I wasn't going to ask perfection of myself. I wasn't even going to ask particularly good of myself. I was just going to ask the next few steps. Mm -hmm. And I think those are some of the things that are most valuable to the folks I coach is learning how to do the next few steps. Because, for example, one of my clients texted me recently that they had this huge week out in front of them, all of these things to do. And we've been working on managing anxiety. And I texted back, you don't have a huge week of things to do. You have 60 seconds of something to do stay present. You know what will come, that's fine, and you can be partially conscious so that you can make good decisions, but you need to stay where you are because 
the week of things to do is not possible. I cannot do a week's worth of things right now. I can do the thing that's possible in this minute. And that's going to help me relate better to all of it. Because mentally and emotionally, if I, if I think about the whole week, I can get sucked into the idea that all of that becomes part of my now. Right. And that simply isn't possible. And that's something that I think happens for ADHD people a lot, where it feels like all of the things have to happen right now. That's that impulsiveness. Mm -hmm. That's the poor time awareness. And it, what you're saying is really important, that, that it doesn't all have to happen right now. And in fact, it literally can't all happen right now. You've got 30 seconds. You've got five minutes. You've got an hour. What can you reasonably do in that time? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's that emotional intelligence component at least the emotional intelligence as it relates to the task. Exactly. How we analyze a thing can be possibly the most important piece of what it is we're doing or how we explain it to ourselves. If I say I have a really big thing to do, really important thing to do, really um, task-heavy thing to do, I'm negatively weighting the thing that I'm trying to do. It would be like if I need to carry an empty basket from one side of the room to the other, but for some reason I decide to put stones in it. The stones aren't necessary. I need to take an empty basket from here to there. Just take the empty basket. Don't load it with things. And so if I, if I consider a task in adjectives, I have this big thing to do. I have the, you know, I, I add adjectives to my thing that, puts it into negative space. I've just put stones in my basket. It's not useful. I have no way of um, making good use of the thing I've just done. And so a, a big piece of what I help people do is, is learn to question from non-judgmental space. I've just explained something to myself. Do I feel better because of the explanation? Do I feel more capable because of the explanation? Do I feel more energized to go do it? If the answer to any of those are no, then I need to redo my explanation. It's kind of like definitions. I do not care for turnip. I used to be forced to eat it as a child. I love being an adult because I never have to eat turnip. <laughs> <laughs> but I meet people and I tell them that like, oh, I love turnip. So I have to be careful that in my life, I don't turn things that I need to do, that I have to do into turnip. Right. Does that make sense? That does, yeah. Like I, I have a thing that I know I don't like that I know I can avoid. Mm -hmm. I can't put those feelings into something I have to do and I cannot avoid. Right, yeah. And we tend to do that. We tend to make our tasks turn up. And some of why we do that, right, is I like to call it the cult of busy. I have all this stuff to do. I have so many things. I have a really big week. I try to avoid that. So if I say I have a really big week, I legitimately have a really big week. But I've certainly worked with plenty of people and I have friends who part of where they get their self-worth is based on how busy they are and how much stuff they have to do. And that's toxic. Yes. Being busy, if that's where your self-worth lives, you're going to burn yourself out. You need to rest. You need to take time to recover. And you also probably need to just do less stuff. If you came to me with that situation where I've always loved being really busy, I feel like I get my self-worth from that. I sort of love announcing to my family that, oh my gosh, I've got a really huge week out ahead of me because, you know, it makes me feel like I've got stuff to do. It's getting in my way. 
I have so much stuff to do. I don't have time for my kids. I don't have time for my spouse. I don't, I don't have time to go to the gym or take a walk in the woods, whatever I want to do. I would say, well, okay, who told you that being busy made you good? Mm -hmm. And you'd have to think about that and you might not know. And so we'd question it a little bit further. Okay. When was the first time you remember feeling like doing a lot of things was a thing that would make you a good person or make you mm -hmm. maybe better than somebody who didn't do as many things. And so you might have like, oh, well, I used to get complimented when I was in middle school because I was in the band. I played um, softball and I was getting good grades in school. I was really busy then, but people complimented me. And so that made me feel good and I wanted to do more. So by the time I was in high school, I was in the band, the chorus, played soccer, played tennis, and I was uh, captain of the debate team. And people complimented me, wow, you do a lot of stuff, that's amazing, you still get good grades, that's awesome. So when I got to college, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was that people- No, I can't say no to anything. Right, and it spiraled because you got, you got that sense of validation that we all really would love to have. Um, it's a normal thing. It's okay to want to feel validated. It's just got to be something that happens from you because somewhere between being about seven and being any other age beyond, external validation no longer is sustainable. It can't be part of what makes us emotionally okay because it's fickle. The same person who validated, validated you yesterday may criticize you today and that's, uh, that'll wreak havoc on the way you feel about yourself. Mm -hmm. So how you identify yourself, how you understand the value you have simply being who you are is paramount to being able to decide how many tasks are actually good. How many things should I participate in? What in my life am I doing because I truly want to be doing it, I enjoy it, and what in my life am I doing because I'm trying to appear a particular way, I'm trying to appease something, I'm trying to feel better about myself, et cetera. Yeah, and that's starting at age seven, that's really tricky, right? Because part of how we parent is by way of that validation for our kids, right? We want to validate their behaviors that we like, we don't want to validate the behaviors that we don't like. So we kind of want them to be seeking that validation because that's the only way we're going to get them to do what we want. My kids are kind of up and down with the validation. They kind of don't care if their teachers validate them or not because mm -hmm. they're like, nope, not fans of school. And that makes school harder for them because they're like kind of all done with it. And some of that is because my kids are kind of bright and they're like smarter than they are mature. Mm -hmm. And so that causes some trouble with them, right? Their EQ is, or their, their IQ is outstripping their EQ. Mm -hmm. And some of that is developmental, right? Like my kids have a pretty solid EQ, but they're only 10. Their IQ is higher than a 10 year old's IQ. Mm -hmm. So, and their EQ is, it's good, but it's like maybe nine. It's a little behind. And so that gap causes difficulty for them. But they're also completely in favor of doing things the right way if the right way is consistently enforced. Mm -hmm. So at home where 
I have expectations. My wife has expectations. They understand those expectations. They're good. But at school where you're told not to run on the wood chips and then six kids run on the wood chips and they don't get in trouble because there's not enough teachers to watch every kid. My kids are the ones who notice that. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, what's up with that then? <laughs> if, you know, like then that rule doesn't matter. And if the rule doesn't matter, then why do any of the rules matter? Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so now what do we do? Because I'm like, all right, guys, I guess you don't really care if you're being validated around behavior because you've no, you found all of the loopholes and it, they're not even looking for them. They just observe that it's not enforced consistently because it literally can't be, but they're not quite mature enough to see the systemic nature of there's three teachers outside at recess and 60 kids and the odds of everybody getting caught when they do it wrong is slim, but the odds of kids doing yeah. it wrong is high because not every kid is trying to toe the line like you are. Yeah. One of the most profound moments in my life in this particular space of emotional intelligence was when I read a book called Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. I would recommend it to absolutely everyone. One of Dr. Rosenberg's ideas is that communication can sound positive and be negative. So if we are trying really hard to help somebody feel validated, we could be accidentally teaching them to crave it. If we are trying to be very nice to someone, we could be accidentally teaching them something that, that won't be beneficial to them. So he, he teaches how to communicate in a space of reality that deeply cares for the other person, but also deeply cares for yourself. And it's, it's amazing and fascinating. But this idea that you could be trying with everything in you to be nice, to validate, to, you know, because I'm raising my kids, to do all of these things that I thought I was supposed to be doing and I could be screwing it up. I almost died right there on the spot. I'm like, oh my God, like can't, I can't do anything right. Parenting is too hard, never mind. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I really started thinking about, about what it was that I dealt with in terms of people saying nice things to me or people, I'm I'm sorry, air quotes, your listeners can't see me doing air quotes. Um, (laughs) People being, air quotes, nice to me, people being uh, supportive was that a lot of it came without any real substance. Mm -hmm. And so what became from a pretty young child for me, most important was truth. If I could understand a thing, I could deal with it even if I didn't like it. As an adult, I've had to accept that not everything is understandable and you have to be okay with that too. Mm -hmm. A particular therapist that I went to gave me the most brilliant idea any therapist has ever given me. You can't explain the unexplainable. Stop trying. I was trying to wrap my head around how somebody could have treated me as badly as this individual we were talking about. And she just shut me down. Why are you trying to understand? There's nothing about this to understand. Stop thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to figure it out. I, I, I don't have to live in that space anymore. And that was a really big step forward for me. 
-hmm. to just be allowed to stop. I don't have to consider horrible behavior as something explainable. I can just call it horrible behavior and that's it. Right. And I, and also that means you don't have to take it personally anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. If you don't have to explain it, it doesn't necessarily have to be something you take personally. Right. And, and that's, a, that's effective for our kids too. Right. Because sometimes our kids do stuff and we're like taking it personally. Like why, why would my kid just yell and scream in the middle of target like that? Well, you know, cause they're six. And they felt like <laughs> and it. That's the thing that happens and we don't need to explain it beyond cause they're six. So tally ho, yeah. take them out of target, calm them down, whatever you need to do, but don't, don't get upset about yeah. it. Don't, don't take that personally. The, the rule thing um, is, is a really fun space for me because everyone I've ever coached has some set of rules stuck in their head that they absolutely desperately need to break. And so I love that your kids have that built-in questioning that, you know, it may be challenging to be their parent, but yay them because they should question the authorities in their head because some authorities need to be kicked out. They need to be disobeyed. I think some of the questioning of authority is because I'm their parent, <laughs> right? Because I, and I, I don't mean that too obnoxiously, a little obnoxiously, but not too obnoxiously. Because I do professional developments with schools, right? So I yeah. go to schools and talk to them about not exactly what they're doing wrong, but sort of what they're doing wrong. Like, because yeah. otherwise I'm not helping you improve. Right. And I work with people about what their challenges are. And as is natural, that stuff comes up at home and I talk about it. And especially when it's school, right? So if school is giving my kids an assignment that's not working, I know almost immediately why it's not working. Mm -hmm. I know really fast. Like it doesn't take me long to assess it and be like, that's because of this. And then I talk to my kids about it. Like this is breaking down because of this. And sometimes it's their fault. Sometimes it's the school's fault. If it's the school's fault, they just take that and own it right away. <laughs> and if it's their fault, they're like, I don't know that I need to own that right now. Maybe uh -huh. I can own that when I'm 40. Yeah, there you go. Seems like 30 years from now is probably a good plan for owning that. <laughs> And so that's stuff I have to work a little harder on. But as a result, you know, negative bias and, and cognitive bias and all that fun stuff, they're looking at school and being like, oh, well, I struggle with math because you made me memorize my math facts and do tests on my addition, subtraction, multiplication, division problems in less than five minutes with 100 questions. And that's not developmentally appropriate. It's like, yeah, no, that's not... Also, we talked about the anxiety and how that's on you and you need to learn to manage your emotions. Remember, we like you walked on the treadmill while we reviewed your math problems. That's on you, homie. Um, so, but they're more than happy to be like, nah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's on me, right? That's me as the dad having to course correct and, and learning that I, I can't even have that conversation with my wife when my kids are in the next room because they're going to hear it and they're going to know it and all that stuff. Those, those, I don't know about this practice conversations need to happen yeah. far away. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I definitely taught my kids too much about uh, emotional intelligence before they were ready in terms of other people, because yeah, especially my son bandit, he used that. <laughs> he had a few teachers that did not appreciate him. <laughs> <laughs> we all have this space where 
we want to be successful. We want to be appreciated. We want to be known for the good that we do. And we've been given ideas about how we should accomplish that. Mm -hmm. And some people get given ideas that are really productive and positive, help them out. They do really well with them. Some people are given ideas that, that do the opposite. And kind of no matter where you are on that scale, it's still important to be questioning the ideas that have been given to you. If you're told there's a right way to do something, it's appropriate to say, who made the rule? Or even, even I, and I don't even want to go as far as saying, is it the right way, right? Because let's not argue that, but is it the only right way? Exactly. To do something. Exactly. The, the universe seems to be this interesting place of infinite possibility. You know, if you're, if you're old enough, you know what a Pentium processor was. And you know that the news was saying that is as fast as we are ever going to compute. And now, you know, Pentium processors, our, our phones are like a million times faster than the best computer you could buy. That, you know, what our phones do is more than what the first mission to the moon required. And they had rooms full of computers. And so, you know, this idea that we have limits is artificial. Mm-hmm. We have we have structures and definitions and, and ways in which we see things. That doesn't mean we have limits. We have gravity. If we considered gravity a limit, we wouldn't have planes. Right. Gravity and planes exist in the same space. And planes actually use what we know about gravity in order to fly. Mm-hmm. And so when we can start seeing that there are more right ways to do a thing than there are wrong ways. We start to have a different attitude about what's possible for ourselves. And we can start clearing out some of the, some of the influences that, that aren't helpful. All of us have influences ramming it around in our head that aren't useful. They may be, may be fairly benign. They're still not useful. Why have non-useful things around? We don't need to be mental hoarders. And so we can learn how to fill our mental space with things that, that do serve a purpose, that might be creative, that might, you know, be hardworking, that might be musically inclined, whatever they are, whatever is you, the best thing you can do for yourself is, is learn how to really appreciate that and express that in the most understandable way for others. Mm-hmm. Part of doing that will be learning how to understand others. Right. Because your son may have needed to walk on the treadmill in order to focus on math. My son would have needed something like that, where one of my daughters would have needed absolutely no distraction, but the piece of paper and the pencil in her hand and don't look at anything else and don't talk about anything else. And will you know, the dog, please stop barking. You know, so each one of us has our way of dealing with a thing and that's fine. What goes awry is when we think there's only one right way to do it. Awesome. Yeah. So there is only one right way to end this podcast. (laughs) And that is for me to say, just being mindful of time. (laughs) Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? 
Thanks. This has been an amazing opportunity. I really appreciate the time to talk to you. We had to do it via a podcast because you and I have such busy schedules. <laughs> the longest conversation we've had, and it's been great. Um, in terms of emotional intelligence, I think uh, two things. One is you are emotionally intelligent. You have these skills that are innate to all of us. Whether or not you know well how to use them may be a different question. Most of us don't know how to use emotional intelligence skills well, basically because they have not been part of what we've been taught. You know, I was taught U.S. history. I still can't really recite much of it. I have vague ideas, you know, so even the stuff we've been taught, we may not be able to use well. Mm -hmm. But these are the things of life. These are the things that make our inner and outer beings better. My, my coaching practice is called EQ Solutions U 2.0. And it's because it's about you. It's about who you are and just expressing that more and better. It's not about fixing you. It's not about turning you into something you're not. It's entirely about valuing, honoring, and cherishing who it is you are and what's going to make you successful in the most progressive and positive ways we can figure out. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.